Thank you. Be seated, please. I encourage you to be back tonight as we look into the Word of God, 2 Samuel chapter 7, to a passage which is probably uh, one of the key passages, if not the key passage, in all of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. Today I'm going to begin a brief series regarding God's principles of family finance. We came to a point in our study in the book of Acts where we were talking about the sharing of the early church. It is apparent to many of us that while our hearts today may be somewhat the same regarding our desire to share, there are many of us who cannot share as we would like because of financial difficulties that we are in. Someone said to me before this service that he thought that up to 95% of the families that come here are in some sort of financial difficulty. That may well be. I don't know whether that be true or not. This much I do know that the Bible says a lot about the subject of family finances. We're told that there are some 700, 700 direct statements in the Bible relating to money. And in addition to that, there are hundreds and hundreds of others that indirectly talk about it. Of course, money itself is neither good nor bad. It is amoral. It becomes good or bad by the way that it is used by those who possess it. I would guess that there's probably not a more urgent need among Christian families than to understand and to apply what God says about how we're to handle our wealth. It is said by some Christian counselors that up to two-thirds of all of the cases they see where there are marriage and family problems, those problems are related to money. Two-thirds of the cases are related to money. Therefore, I think it's very important that we as a church have some understanding of what God says about how to handle our finances. Now, I'm going to make a statement which is going to sound a little familiar, but it is my proposition for this morning. This is the point I want to mainly get across, not only today, but in another week or two to come. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your finances. He really does. God loves you and he has a plan for your finances. You say, what finances? <laughs> you don't know how poor I am. Well, I think I might have an idea of the stress that some of us are under. And that brings us to the first point, actually, and it's this. All of us possess wealth. God gives it to us. That is the first thing I want you to get today. That all of us possess wealth. It is God who gives it to us. Now, when I use the term wealth, I'm using it in the biblical sense. It means whatever we have. It does not mean that we are rich. We have wealth, all of us, because we do have some things as compared to having nothing. Larry Burkett, in his book entitled Christian Financial Concepts, uh, a complete Bible study course actually on finances, has this definition of wealth. 
Historically, wealth has been related to ownership, land, camels, cattle, slaves, etc. Currently, wealth is often expressed in representational ideas. For example, the dollar has no objective value as an item, but it stands for ownership. Similarly, the value of a stock is not based on the value of the company, but on the collective opinion of the public about the stock. Even gold, which has fascinated man through the ages, has a value based on opinion, as illustrated by sharp speculative increases and decreases. Wealth is also related to our creative ability, notice that, and our credit or borrowing ability, the trust others have in us. Thus, wealth becomes an extension of our personalities. According to our personality, it can be used creatively, spreading the gospel, building hospitals and churches, or it can be wasted, spending it on frivolous activities. It can be corruptive, using it to purchase influence, or it can be destructive, buying guns and bombs. And then he concludes with this very concise statement. Wealth is what God entrusts to us. Wealth is what God entrusts to us. It may be tangible or intangible, but it's anything about us that does or can have measurable value. That is our wealth. It is God who gives us wealth. In Haggai 2.8, the Lord says that all of the silver and all of the gold are His. Now essentially what God is saying there is that all wealth actually is His because He is the Creator. By virtue of that creatorship, He is the owner of it all. But God gives it to you and to me. He enables us to gain wealth so that we become stewards of what really is God's. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter, the 18th verse. And notice this word. Deuteronomy 8, 18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, says Moses, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. He warns the Israelites, remember the Lord, because it is he who gives you the power to make, to create, to gain in your wealth. It is from him. Whatever we have comes from the Lord. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament now, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, says it a little differently. It's used here in a more generic sense, but it certainly applies to wealth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I'm looking at the second sentence in that verse. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? It's a good question. That's a question for all of us to consider. What do we have that we did not receive? We may talk about our spiritual gifts and abilities, 
or our Christian leaders, as Paul is talking here in this context. Or we can talk about our personalities. We can talk about our very bodies. We can talk about the material things that we have. There is nothing that we, quote, have that we did not receive directly or indirectly from the Lord. So God does not condemn the possession of wealth. Indeed, as we see in his word, he gives us the power to gain it. Now a question. How does God enable us to gain wealth? What is God's plan? What is God's way for us to gain wealth? There are three answers, I think, at least, to that question. Answer number one, W-O-R-K. One of those four-letter words. Work. In Proverbs 14.23 it says, In all labor there is profit. God's plan is for us to work to gain in wealth. God did not intend for us necessarily to be born with a golden spoon in our mouth, so to speak, so that we would not have to work. God's plan is for man to work. Again, in the book of Proverbs, and you may want to turn there to the sixth chapter, Proverbs chapter 6, the Lord points to one of the smallest of his creatures as an example of work. You'll know what I'm talking about when you see Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. You say, what in the world is a sluggard? Well, that refers to a lazy person, a sluggish person. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. He says, if you want to gain wisdom, look at the ant and follow the example of the ant, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. The next time you go on a picnic and you sit on an ant hill, which is inevitable, isn't it? They're not there by accident. And they begin to crawl on the table over your food to get a little bit. Don't become angry. Realize that that ant is simply doing what God has instructed it to do. That ant is working. The ant is not your enemy. Oh, the ant may bite you or sting you if you get in its way. But the ant really is not attacking you. The ant is simply doing what it feels intuitively, instinctively, it must do. It must work to gain provision because winter is coming, especially in the Minnesota ecology. And when winter comes, the ant is not going to come out. How is it that all these insects are able to live from year to year? It's because they they plan ahead. An ant, for example, takes all that food down into its home in the ground and all winter long it's able to exist there in warmth, relative warmth, being nourished in safety because it works ahead. 
So God says to you and me, if you want to gain in wealth, look at the ants. The ant works hard while it can to lay up provision for itself. And of course, the application to that is quite obvious. Now I can hear somebody say, well, I know we have to work, but that's related to sin and to the fall of man. And thus it's the woman's fault in the first place. Well, there are two things equally true there, both of which are false. And that is the woman's fault in the first place. And secondly, that work is related just to the fall. Go back to the book of Genesis for a minute and look at Genesis chapter 3. We do have this word to Adam. By the sweat of your face, verse 19, Genesis 3. I have been told that animals sweat, men perspire, and women shine. But God says here, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And so after the fall, it is true, God said to man, you will work. And you will work hard. You will exhaust yourself in labor. You will sweat so that you can eat bread until the day you die. But back up another page. Have you ever looked in chapter 2 of Genesis? And notice verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. This is now before the fall, remember. Now, why did God put him there in the garden? To cultivate it and keep it. So you see, even before sin entered the picture, it was God's plan for man to work. Now, there is a, a new dimension of it since the fall. There is an intensity, hardness about it that was not present before. Eden was a perfectly balanced ecological system. Man would have to cultivate and till it and keep it. It would not have been the kind of work that we have to go through today. But nonetheless, work has been a part of God's plan from the very beginning. That is part of God's method for us to gain in wealth, to work. That was not only God's plan back then, it is God's plan in this age. The Apostle reminds us when he writes to Timothy that if any man does not provide for his household, his family, for his own, and especially his family, it says, then he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. In other words, it is God's plan in this age, too, for us to work. He warns in 2 Thessalonians about lazy busybodies who want to depend upon other people to support them who don't want to have to work and who uh, beg off of other believers. He says, don't feed them anything. He says, if a man will not work, neither will he eat. So you see, work is part of God's plan for us to gain wealth. The Bible teaches a work ethic. It is honorable for a person to be involved in work with his hands. It is an honorable work to labor hard. There's a second way that God has planned for us to gain in wealth, and that is through investment. Listen to the words of Proverbs 21.20. 20. 
There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. The key word in that verse is precious. He says there is precious treasure and oil in the house of a wise man. In other words, it's been saved. It's been stored up. It's been laid aside for the future when it might be needed. A wise man takes treasure and oil, which was an important part of their life in that day, olive oil, and he saves it. He lays it up for the future. But he says that uh, a foolish man swallows it all. He wastes it. The Living Bible paraphrases it this way. The wise man may save for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. And so investment or savings is one way in which God plans for us to increase in our wealth. Now people do that in a variety of ways. There are some people who have savings accounts. There are others who invest in bonds or in the stock market. There are some who buy properties and they invest in that way. Many of us intend for our home to be some kind of a method for us to save. There are a variety of ways to do this, but the point is that is one way that God has legitimately provided for us to gain in our wealth. God has not provided for chance or for gambling. There is not a place for that in the biblical ethic. Gambling involves trying to get something for nothing, and it always victimizes other people. Furthermore, whenever gambling is involved, you can always count on undesirable elements and ultimately even the underworld being involved in it. It is a concern to me that gambling is going to begin in this state with horse racing. And there are those who are trying to get it into the state in other means as well. That is not biblical. That is not consistent with what God says. It is legitimate to gain wealth through work, And through investment, savings, there's a third way to gain in wealth, and that is through inheritance. Now, all of us do gain that way, but some of us do. I think a verse that can relate to this is 2 Corinthians 12, 14, where Paul says, Children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Now, he applies that to his own situation in a particular way, but the point is that he's laying down a certain law of society or humanity there. And that is that children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but rather parents do indeed do that for their children. Some can do it to a greater extent than others. I have never uh, inherited a large sum of money in my life. One, One fellow pastor, the only inheritance I think I've ever gotten was a fellow pastor who died, and he left me $300 to help me build my library, and which I really appreciated. Apart from that, I've never had an inheritance. I have inherited, though, from my parents a good name, which the Bible says is to be treasured more than money. But the fact is that some people do gain wealth through inheritance. I related to you last week, I think, the friend of mine who took a trust that had been left to him by his parents, which was only a few thousand dollars, And through wise investment and hard work, he has projected that. And so that today he is uh, indeed a very rich person and has dedicated his riches to the Lord. 
But he began with inheritance, you see. That was God's provision for him. In Proverbs 19, 14, the first part of the verse, it says, House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers. It goes on to say, a prudent wife is from the Lord. That's even more important. But it does say in the first half of the verse that house and wealth come from fathers, from our parents. And that is a legitimate way God has provided for us to gain. The prodigal son was not wrong in gaining an inheritance. He was certainly wrong in the way that he used it, wasted it. And he was wrong in the way he got it. Because he went to his father and said, give me my inheritance. And some people say that when he was doing that, because inheritance is supposed to come at the death of the father, what he was really saying was, you've lived too long. I wish you would die. So go ahead and give me my inheritance. So the way that he got it was wrong too. But gaining the inheritance itself was not wrong. In fact, the, the story that Jesus told suggests that when he came back home to his father, he got inheritance back. He was reinstated into the family as a full son, and that was one reason the elder brother was so angry, because now what was left had to be divided again with his brother. Inheritance is one way that God has given us to gain wealth. So the first thing I want you to understand is this, that God gives us wealth. All of us possess it. All of us do. To some degree, lesser or greater, all of us possess wealth. God has entrusted something to all of us, tangible or intangible. The second thing I want you to understand is this, that God uses wealth for several purposes in our lives. Now, I want to talk about four of them. The first purpose that God uses wealth for is to bless us. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. You know, the devil has done a number on a lot of people and made them think that God is a stingy God who loves to watch his children beg, who enjoys watching them have needs and curiously, perhaps, even with a sinister motive, tries to find out what they're going to do in their needs. My friend, that is not our God at all. Our God is a generous God. Our God is a God who loves. Our God is a God who desires to bless us with fullness. Now those may sound like strange words to you. To the extent that they do, you've been conned by the enemy. But it is true that God desires to bless us with those things that will make us happy. God wants our best. Just as an earthly father here enjoys giving to his children, God enjoys giving to us. It says in Matthew 7, 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? When we come to our Heavenly Father and ask Him, He delights to be able to bless us. Now, He does not always give us just what we ask for when we want it. We parents don't do that for our children either. But the fact is that God's heart is bountiful toward us. God really wants to pour out fullness upon all of us. That is where his heart is. That's why in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, God gives us richly 
all things to enjoy. God is not a mean ogre. God is a generous and wise heavenly Father who gives us wealth to bless us. Now there's a second purpose that God has for enabling us to gain wealth. And that is to test us. Turn to Matthew 25. We'll look here at one of the familiar parables that Jesus told, sometimes called the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, says Jesus, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice that the one had five more, the other had two more, but they both got exactly the same commendation from their master because they did what they could with what had been given them. Verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have my, put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. And to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there's a lot said in this parable, but I want us to take the most obvious and in some respects superficial lesson of all from it and apply it to our particular point. This master gave to his slaves what belonged to him. He gave to each man according to his ability. 
to one five talents, another two, another one. And he instructed them to use them. That was the expectation in the committing of the talents to the servants. There was a time when he came back. It was a long time, but he did return. And it seems as though the first thing he did was to call in his slaves to get an accounting of what had been given to them for their use. And the story is the, the one who received five, the other who had received two, did well. The man who received but one did not receive blessing from his master because he had not done well. What he did have was taken away from him. The application is this. Our Lord has entrusted to you and to me resources. That includes our money. It includes our time, our talents, that is our abilities, our spiritual gifts. That is our wealth that God has committed to us. It differs with all of us. There is coming a day when our master will call us before himself so that we can give an accounting of what we have done with what he has entrusted to us. We will be asked to present on that day no more than we could with what had been given. There will be people there on that day of the judgment with more or less of, quote, return to give to the Lord. Those who have been faithful with what they were given will receive the same reward, a commendation from the Lord and an equivalent blessing, I believe, in the kingdom to reign with Christ to their faithfulness here over what they had been given. The warning of the parable is that we should think that we could waste or at least not be very careful about the investment of what God gives to us. For if that is our attitude on that day of the judgment, then our Lord will take away what we do have and we will enter into the kingdom with no share in his reign. We will have no part in reigning with him. That seems to be the application of the parable, at least one of them. The Lord gives us our resources, here's my point, to test us. You say, what difference does it make what I do with my money? I give my tithe to the Lord. Well, in the first place, we don't teach tithing here. But in the second place, more than the tithe is the Lord's. 100% of it is the Lord's. And what I do with what I don't give to the Lord directly is just as important as what I do give to Him. Do you get that? If I give to the Lord 10%, what I do with that other 90% is just as important and just as accountable to God as that 10% I do give. That's part of the wealth that God has given to me. And someday when I'm called before Him to give account of my stewardship, God isn't going to ask me about the 10% only. He's going to be interested in all of it. And according to my faithfulness to use wisely for legitimate needs what I have been given, I will be given 
greater blessing to reign with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. God gives us our wealth to test us. That's part of its purpose in this life. I overheard a couple of elders in a, in a church a uh, long way from here talking about their pastor and what he had been paid. And uh, the one said, you know, I was amazed at what he said because he said to us that he didn't need that much money. And the other said, well, I know that that's true. He doesn't need that much money. But I want to see what he's going to do with it. You see, the attitude of that wise elder was the same attitude that God has with every one of us. I want to see what he, what she is going to do with it. That's the test of it. There's a third purpose for wealth in our lives. God gives us wealth to teach us. Turn to Matthew chapter 14. We'll look at verse 13. You know, there were times when Jesus became tired. When the pressure of the crowds was very great. In verse 13, it seems as though we come upon one of those occasions. It says, Now when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, The place is desolate and the time is already past. In other words, it was past three o'clock in the afternoon. That was the first hour of the evening. It was getting late in the day. The sun was going down. So send away the multitudes, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I can just see their mouths drop wide open when he said that. You give them something to eat. What did they have? Well, they said, Lord, we have only five loaves and two fish. Now, was that theirs? Did it come from somebody else in the crowd? The context here doesn't say. But that was all they had. That was the wealth that had been entrusted to them. Now, get that. It wasn't much, but it was something. That was what was entrusted to them on this occasion. Now, Jesus says, feed the multitudes. Well, he said, bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline in the grass, he took five loaves and two fishes, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, aside from women and children, perhaps up to 10,000 people. 10,000 filled themselves for their evening meal on five loaves and two fish. And besides that, there were 12 full baskets of food that were left over. You see what Jesus did on this occasion? He used the wealth that he had given to his disciples to teach them a lesson 
about his power and his sufficiency. Now, my friend, that's what God does with the wealth he commits to you and me as well. As the poet has put it, little is much when God is in it. God wants us to see that. God wants us to understand the potential of even a little bit that he puts into our hands if we give that to him. He is able to take that and to bless it beyond anything that we could imagine. Certainly anything that we could do in ourselves. The Lord desires to use the wealth that he gives us to teach us of his ability, his trustworthiness, to increase our faith, to develop our patience. There are times when God, in fact, withholds, perhaps, so that we may learn patience and trust. God uses wealth, or its lack in our lives, to teach us. It's certainly one way he can get our attention quickly in our society, isn't it? We are such a materialistic, money-oriented society that money is one way that God can quickly snap his fingers and we're listening. And hopefully we're listening well and learning to see what he wants to teach us. A final, a fourth purpose of God in bringing wealth into our lives is in this, to use us. To use us to meet others' needs. We saw this in 2 Corinthians 8.14 last week. Do you remember that? Paul said, look, right now you are being used of God to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem by your giving. There may come a day, he suggests, when you will be impoverished and they will send an offering to you. That is an equality, he says. It all comes out in the end. Now, one of the purposes that God gives us wealth is this, that he wants to use us to be a channel to give to other people. We become channels of his resources to others who have needs around us. There are some of you have, who have entered into this. We have one person in our church who has shared with me <clears throat> that he has a separate bank account for this purpose. And he regularly makes deposits into that account. It becomes God's account so he doesn't feel too bad writing the checks. And when he hears about a need and God lays it on his heart, he writes out a check to meet the need, often doing that anonymously. I remember the first time this happened to me, the first time that I can recall. And uh, it was a friend who was in Christian work. Uh, my wife and I went to another church in our metropolitan area to, to uh, hear him speak. And after the service, we went up to greet him. He did not know the financial pressures that we were going through at that time. At all. As we waited in line, our turn finally came. And when we shook hands, I felt something in his hand. And I looked down, and it was a $50 bill. And I said, uh, what's this, Larry? He said, uh, I don't know what it's for, but God laid on my heart last night to give that to you when I saw you. He had no idea that we needed that. But that was God's using one of his children to be a channel to meet our need in that case. 
There are others here who have experienced that same kind of blessing. You know what's even greater than than looking down and seeing it in your hand? You know what it is, don't you? It's having it in your hand and putting it in somebody else's. Or in some other way, giving it to them. So they may not even know where it came from. But it's being that channel of God to meet somebody else's need. That's why God gives us wealth in part. Because he wants to use us, to make us a channel of blessing to others. That's just great, isn't it? What a great joy it is to be able to be used of God in that way. So God uses our wealth for a number of purposes in our lives. To bless us, to test us, to teach us, to use us. Now the third area I'd like to address today is this. We must beware of the dangers of wealth. Now I've said that all of us have it because God gives it to us and that God uses it in our lives. But folks, there are dangers when it comes to wealth. I want to talk about three of them today. Number one, gaining it can become the focus of our lives. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. One of the dangers of wealth is that gaining more of it can become the reason for our living. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. But those who want to get rich, the idea is those who choose, who set their minds, who will to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Do you want to know the fastest way to end up at the bottom? It is to set your mind on getting rich. That is the fastest plunge there is into ruin and destruction. He says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. They have inflicted injury upon themselves. They have wandered away from the faith because they have longed for money. They have longed for money like a lost lover. They love it. Now one can have it and not love it and not have it and love it. I mean, you know that. He's not saying here that having it or not having it is wrong, but he's saying that whether you have it or not, to love it is wrong. Because it eventually controls and dominates your life, it becomes the God mammon. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. It subverts a person's morality to love money. It causes one to manipulate other people, to destroy anyone or anything that gets in the way. Jesus warns in Matthew 13, 22 about the deceitfulness of riches. If you love money, you are loving something that lies to you. What does money say? Well, a couple of lies that you hear from money. Money says, if you get this much more you'll be satisfied. Now, it may be $1,000 or maybe $500,000, but doesn't matter. Anxiety sets in. You see, possessing it can create anxiety if we allow it to. That's the second danger. The third danger is this. 
Failure to manage it can bring one into bondage. By that I mean debt. It's important to define a word like debt. What I mean by that is what I think the Bible means by it. And that mean, that is the inability to repay what has been borrowed. In other words, if one is current in his obligations, if he's meeting his loan obligations, that is not debt in the biblical sense. Debt is when I have overextended myself. I know there are those who use a proof text in Romans 13, 8 that says, Oh, no man, anything. The verse goes on to say, but to love one another. In other words, what the verse really is saying is, you can never say, I've loved enough and paid all I owe. Keep on paying or keep on loving, in other words. It's an obligation that can never be fully repaid. The text is not there relating to finances, particularly. One is in debt, he is in bondage, however, when he has gotten to the place where he cannot borrow, as he's pro- cannot repay, rather, as he's promised to, what he has borrowed. The result is frustration, unfulfilled needs, worry, and one becomes the servant of another. Proverbs 22.7 warns us that the borrower becomes the slave of the lender in a situation like this. When one has gotten beyond what he's able to repay. So the third danger of wealth is this, that failure to manage it properly can bring one into bondage. And I guess one of the reasons that I feel so impelled to talk about it for a week or two is the fact that there are so many in our church who are facing this kind of bondage. Young couples who have gotten into homes, for example. And the result of that is financial bondage. Beware of borrowing money based upon the fact that you and your wife are both working now. Because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may not have both of those incomes to depend upon. You students, beware of borrowing money too much for your education. People are making it easier and easier to borrow huge, vast sums of money in order to finish your college education. But there comes a point when that becomes unwise. We have numerous families in our church today who are in financial bondage because of college loans. Upwards to five, ten, even twenty thousand dollars borrowed to finish college. And the thought is back at the time is well, when I get out of college, I'll earn fifty thousand dollars a year and pay all that back in two years. You got some surprises coming. You're better off quitting college, going out and working for a while, earning some money, coming back, and then finishing college and paying for it that way than borrowing vast sums of money. Beware of financial bondage. It can happen before you know it. And the sad thing is that early in your married life, you can make mistakes that you pay for for years and years and years. Now, how can one escape these dangers? How can one be delivered from the love of money? How can one be released from worry? How can one get out of financial bondage? Those are good questions, and we're going to talk about them in two weeks.
We're out of time today. We've talked a lot about money. Just want to remind anyone who's here, though, who is thinking somehow that money is what life is all about, that that rich man there in Luke that we just looked at was caught up short. He said, I'm going to build barns, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'll take care of myself and be at ease. See, he bought the lies of money. He said in the first place, if I get this much, that'll be enough. I'll be at ease. You see? He was deceived. He bought the lies of money. Listen, God said to him that night, You fool, your soul is required of you. Your soul is required of you. You and you and you and me by God. How is it with your soul and the Lord? How is it today? Is all well between you and the Lord? As a Christian, are you walking in obedience? As one who's never trusted Jesus Christ, will you come to him in faith today so that all will be at peace between you and God? I hope you will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the instruction of your word. My prayer is that we'll not just be hearers of it and write it down on a piece of paper, but that we will also be doers of it and put it into practice in our lives. And I pray, Father, that we will be obedient to the principles of finance that you've laid out in your word, and wherein we haven't in the past, that you will help us to know what to do to get into the place of obedience. Now, Father, I especially want to pray for that one who's here today who's deceived by money and who thinks that without, with, with his money, he doesn't need God. I pray that that one will be delivered from that deceit, that lie today, and will turn to you in repentance and will trust you so that all can be well between him and you. Deliver those of us who are your children from the deceit of riches as well. And if there needs to be repentance in our lives, if we need to make some decisions, Lord, to be in conformity to your will, then then get us to that point quick. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close.